You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 121 of Retired Racehorse Radio on the Horse Radio Network, part of Equine Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, Cashel Company, and Morton Buildings. Retired Racehorse Radio is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse, brought to you in cooperation with the Retired Racehorse Project and New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program. On today's show, we take a deep dive into the world of the aftercare professional with three horsewomen who make a living by selling thoroughbred sport horse prospects. Winnie Morgan Nemeth and Dot Morgan from New Vocations Adoption Program brings us a special treat with the introduction of their new book, Track to Trail. Stay tuned. And they're off on Retired Racehorse Radio, the podcast that is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. This is Joy Orr in Detroit, Michigan. And this is Kristen Kovach-Bentley in Jamestown, New York, and you're listening to Retired Racehorse Radio. Kristen, this has been the weirdest winter, but the days are getting longer. I'm here for it. It was 5.30 and I was bringing horses in and it was still daylight. So I'm, I'm staying optimistic. Yeah, it's still like lights on while recording time. Yeah, it's not still a thing. When I forget, and then by the time we're done, I'm like, it is really dark in here. But yeah, uh, I'm I'm sorry, environment, but the light has to stay on while we do this. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was nice. Like recording days are usually end up just being like a chores and a little bit of turnout, stretch your legs Mm -hmm. kind of day. Um, Anyway, but yeah, I've been like kind of on a regular schedule of. Like I've noticed that in your social, like you're actually getting your horse time in and I feel like you've given your thoroughbred some time off, but they're not totally off the hook. Yeah. And like, I mean, I realistically, I'm like, listen, they have 23 and a half hours off and because there's three of them, they only are working about two days a week each. So so it's still quite light work, but yeah, they did have like December, they were like essentially off, off. And now they're just easing back into it. So I've ridden Jobber three times. Shorty's been long-lined like three or four times. And I I never know what we're doing with Wes. So Wes is just... Wes is existing. He's He's living his best life as the center of your attention right now. (laughs) Yeah, the thoroughbreds have taught him to rear, not under saddle, before anyone's like, oh my God. Like (laughs) When they all turned out, it's now becoming like Wes is like bouncing next to Shorty, trying to get Shorty to play with him. And Shorty's like, can you leave me alone? Like we're eating grass. They live out all the time in a dry lot, but then I let them out onto a bigger grass yard to like romp around. And Wes is like, play with me, play with me, play with me, play with me, play with me. And Shorty's like, stop. And nobody will go near Jobber because Jobber is very scary. But yeah, yeah. Little 20 year old Wes is like, look at the trick I learned. And he's like trying very hard to stand up on his back legs. I'm like, this is great. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I I secretly love it. Only because- Well, I just want to imagine Wes like living his best life, being youthful and silly. Like this is probably his first chance ever. I do think so. Yeah. Because, you know, like I am confident that his life on the track, you know, like most racehorses, he probably had a great life, you know, great care, great grooms, great handlers. And I imagine that most likely based on the condition that he was in when my friend got him from the kill pen that like, I don't think he was like mishandled under his Amish owners, but I don't think he probably was allowed to bloom and have a little personality. And Mm -hmm. now he has a great big personality. So (laughs) I'm like, well, well, there we are. So yeah, he's a riot. He makes me laugh every day. 
I also uh-huh. speculate now that maybe the Amish took him to the sale because they were fearing for their own lives and not because he had outlived his usefulness. So that's yeah. a that's a debate for another day. <laughs> yeah. He's a maniac. I love him. Yeah, but so fun. I just, I enjoy watching all of the antics. Also, it's been nice because my horse has been injured. So we have not had a consistent schedule. It's not too serious. Yeah. Well, same injury is the thing. So we determined that she had a strained hamstring, if you will. It was summarized that way. Her her butt cheek uh, was strained. (laughs) Her butt. butt. She hurt her butt. Um, and it was just when we had, like, we went from frozen ground to mud and my guess is she either slipped getting up or she slipped just to being out there doing whatever she's doing. And I'll still pick turnout over no turnout. It, she mentally is great. She has been enjoying cuddles and we've been doing a lot of hand walking. I am doing light riding, like more rehab riding. So it doesn't heal stiff. Mm. Um, and it's been nice, like work on our foundations and she is moving better, like just off the seat, which I've been really appreciating. So I'm trying to look at the positives of this, but she did heal briefly where like we were trotting and acting very silly. There was a great reel of her being her full authentic self. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but then the, the beautiful snow melted into slush of all things. And we think because she had a very interesting wet mark on her side and she's been in a blanket. So we think she slipped getting up after laying down because my girl likes oh, to nap. Oh, wiped out. Yeah. She's a, she's a hard napper. She will nap from about 10 a.m. to about 2 p.m. Oh, girl. She gets that beauty sleep. <laughs> you know what, though? That's a really good point you make. Like, I would, like, yes, I get that they do stupid stuff to themselves and turn out, but I would still much rather like take yeah, the chance I mean, and turn them out like and it's not a serious like it's very minor heat she's still moving fine like she'll trot on her own i don't make her do anything but you know she's feeling good i'm good with it i don't think it's anything to stall rest for um yeah. i'm just no, keeping an eye on it for sure if you stall rest, that sounds like the kind of injury that like she'd be like now i'm stiff exactly like i'd rather her go out kind of get her energy out we hand walk for a few weeks versus she stall rested for a couple days and goes out blazing. <laughs> I mean, we don't yeah. need that. So um, not the, not the winter I thought we'd have, but we are working on a lot of good foundation things, revisiting habits, like being polite in the cross ties, both cross ties. She normally likes one, uh, two. <laughs> so we <funny>. are <laughs> testing. Is okay. That set is not. No, she likes one because she likes to look into the arena. She likes ah, to watch okay. everybody. And it, I mean, she's perfectly behaved when you do that. She's just like, minds her own business. But oh, when you put two on, she will paw and she glares at you. And she's like, this is not fun for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think like this is the winner. I'm really trying. Like I'm doing kind of the same thing, like really trying to stick myself to all the stuff I wish I worked on in the summer. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm like, ah, oh, man, should have done that in the winter. Like last winter, we we had more snow. So we rode around on the snow and practiced roping and stuff. And that was fun. And we haven't done that much this winter because it's been pretty muddy, um, yeah. which is fine because it's let me work on the herd sourness a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's really hard to know if I'm fixing I'm it I'm dealing with that now too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, and oh. it, it's really every single like professional, non-professional horse person, like everybody I've spoken You'll to, deal with it once. Goes, well, they're all like, "Ooh, that's hard to fix," and nobody mm-hmm. has any other solutions. 
<laughs> so I'm just doing my one horse works, one horse goes in, one horse stays out alone trick. Yeah. They're at least kind of learning to cope for that half hour. Yeah. Or so. I think mine, so it's not Astrid. Astrid could give two flying blue jays about what the other horses are really doing. Cause for her, she's like, my, my person means she's a Pez dispenser. There are treats somewhere and we're going to go do something fun. So that is what I'm trying to incorporate in my training horse that I now have, um, who is also a chestnut mare, who looks very similar to Astrid, but is very different than Astrid. Her name is Millie. We've talked about her. Um, She's my student's horse and she's in training with me. And Millie's like very, very chill for the most part, but she is very attached to Astrid, who does not reciprocate. So Millie will scream and she'll want to stay close to Astrid's or like be able to see Astrid. So she doesn't do anything horribly naughty, but for an 11 year old, she does try to like turn around when she's not supposed to, or she'll kind of hop up, not a full rear, but just like a little hop up to go back to where she wants to be. Mm, Yeah. I don't like that. And she'll only do it once or twice, but no, it's not very it's just enough to be like, I'm unsettled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's enough to be annoying. Like even right. for me. And I'm just like, stop that. So hoping to do the same thing I did with Astrid is we're doing a lot of positive reinforcement. So when she does do the right things, she gets lots of praise. And this horse loves a compliment. She loves being like scratched. She loves being told she's beautiful. She is very food oriented. Like all of the things. So it's been getting a lot better. It's not perfect. But so far, we're just trying to associate like work can be play and it can be fun for her. And then when she gets in her groove and gets over her pity party, she actually is very lovely. But um, it is interesting. I It made me appreciate Astrid's fitness um, getting on Millie because it feels like I'm riding a duck. Oh, <laughs> she waddles when she gets tired. We like we oh, just God. give up. I'm kind of really supporting her where Astrid like floats around. I'm like, man, that that is some nice, nice realization for me that my work paid off in Astrid. <laughs> yeah, it is really fun, you know, because right now I'm jumping between three different horses until mm-hmm. the days get longer and Eric can ride again. And I'm like, oh, boy, these are three different animals. Like, yes, they're all plenty fat for the winter. But my God, they are different. <laughs> it's it's crazy because you look at them and you get used to seeing them and it's like, you think you know them. And then you're, yeah, you're like, that's just my guy. And then you get on the other one and you're like, oh. <laughs> I, I've learned I, I can't write. Right I don't enjoy writing Astrid first and going to Millie. I prefer going Millie first and Astrid. Yeah, you save the treat for last. No offense, Millie. I've never no met offense, you. No offense, And you know. she's lovely. She's super smart. She tries so hard. But, oh, my low back sometimes. I'm like, we got to get that core in shape. <laughs> I oh, yeah. can't carry us forever. <laughs> But um, no, she's she's learning how to hold herself up in the canter. That's the next thing. We can go about three strides before we want to give up. So we oh, are you're very having a shape. very productive winter, though. I think I cantered last in September. So good for yeah. you. I mean, I have an indoor and I know that's a very <laughs> yeah. nice perk. Sorry for everyone who doesn't. I didn't for a very long time. I know my privilege. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But um, no, I'm excited to get them outside. I, I really am excited to get them out. I think they're going to be happier and actually easier to work with than inside. Mm-hmm. Soon. Longer days are coming, friends. Longer Everybody days are coming. But you know what else there. is coming? A stellar episode. I'm actually really excited. It is our first panel of the year. Um, I know we met with Anise from Amplify Horse Racing. 
Uh, so that was kind of like a mini panel. This is our first panel. And we are talking about reselling thoroughbreds and talking to some pretty badass women who are doing it. Um, and then we also have a really special treat with new vocation. So normally we feature an adoptable horse. This week, we're going to be giving you like the trading tip of trading tips with their new book. It's going to be awesome. But before we get into all that, we're going to hear from our premier sponsor, Kentucky Performance Products. Frequently Asked Questions brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. I know my older horse will benefit from a joint supplement, but can it help my younger horse too? Yes, it can. The joints of young horses experience daily wear and tear that can lead to joint degeneration over time. A well-balanced joint supplement provides the building blocks necessary to support healthy cartilage and synovial fluid so horses stay sounder longer. Joint Armor is the product of choice for younger horses. It provides high levels of both glucosamine and chondroitin, plus 100 milligrams of hyaluronic acid. Joint Armor is herb-free, so there is no worry about it testing in show horses. Betsy sent us the following comments after she started her five-year-old quarter horse mare on Joint Armor. My vet recommended I try Joint Armor. After 10 days, I couldn't believe the difference. She is now floating across the arena and willingly forward with impulsion and suspension. I am thrilled. She is happier too. Ears up and a soft eye. Thank you for such a great product. You can learn more about Joint Armor at kppusa.com. Got questions about your feeding program? We can help. Email Karen at questions at kppusa.com or call us at 859-873-2974. Joy, I'm really excited about this panel. I've been wanting to like cook this up for a, a while, um, and we have three really cool guests with us today to talk about um, kind of the ins and outs and realities of being a professional horse person in aftercare, so not coming from the nonprofit route, um, which is a little bit of a departure for us at Retired Racehorse Radio. I mean, I think we talk to a lot of people who do, you know, buy and sell their thoroughbreds, but we haven't ever focused on it as a subject before. So I'm really excited to like pick the brains of the three fabulous ladies that we have with us today. So we have Aubrey Graham from Georgia. Christina Hobbs from Texas and Jade Favre from Louisiana, which all happen to be places that are probably much warmer and nicer than where Joy and I are in Michigan and New York, respectively. So that's cool. Uh, so we're super excited to have all three of you on with us today. Um, because there's three of us, we'll take it in turns here and have you ladies tell us a little bit more about you know your business model and your program um, and, of course, what it's called. So Aubrey, we'll go alphabetically. We'll start with you. Welcome to Retired Resource Radio. Thank you guys so much for, for having me. This is fantastic. Where to start? So I run Kiwi Sport Horses and Training in McDonough, Georgia, so just south of Atlanta. And I do a little bit of everything. I'm a former professor, an anthropologist, um, and I left academia to do mostly thoroughbreds full time, which is one of those debatable life decisions that I am very happy I have done, but also want to kind of check myself in at points and be like, am, am I certifiable? What have I done to my life? Um, all the best things. But um, the business model is basically that I, I do a bunch of different things. So I am an eventing trainer. Um, I event myself. And so I have a set of students that ride with me. But I've also, over the past number of years, turned my farm into a retraining and sales facility. So I do consignment. I will have mostly thoroughbreds that come in though every once in a while somebody wants to kind of punk me and send me a big draft but I have so people will send me horses for sale and I will help them get them to new families 
and I also buy and sell off the track. So I actually, Jade currently has one of my horses who has not made it to my house yet. Um, <laughs> so I am constantly uh, looking for new horses, shipping horses in, um, whether they're for myself or other people. And then I work on marketing them to the best people that I can get them out to. And beyond that, so it's kind of a scattershot approach. I do that as like my main thing. And then on top of it, I write for Horse Nation. Um, I write an article series called Thoroughbred Logic, and I run clinics by the same name here. And this year, I opened up Thoroughbred School because I got really tired of people coming in to try these horses and having kind of this major eye-opening situation where they were like, wow, these aren't like anything I've ever ridden before and I've ridden my whole life. And so trying to get people better at riding them so they can better buy appropriate horses, whether from people like Jade and Christina or myself or, you know, other people around the country. So without running my mouth any further, there you have it. That's a, a well-rounded approach. I like mm -hmm. it. I always like, always appreciate a, an education focus too. So very cool. Thank you. All right. We'll toss it off to Christina. Perfect. Ah, hard to follow, Aubrey. You can go in a million different directions. I'm Christina Hobbs, and I run Rest Frosty Thoroughbreds out of Alito, Texas, right outside of Fort Worth. Grew up eventing my whole life, went out and trained with the O'Connor event team for a while. Came back and did some jumpers, did the coaching route, you know, the typical horse trainer business model and just going to burn out, fell out of love with it, wanted to do something that gave back to the horses strictly um, and not so much just economical driven. Obviously, it's an economical in a business as well. So we have to have a balance between the two. But we do focus completely on thoroughbreds. Again, kind of like Aubrey, once in a while, I'll get a consignment horse thrown my way or a training horse someone's struggling with. But we basically buy and sell thoroughbreds. I have a few business partners who help me invest. So we're able to do a good size volume, about 50 plus horses a year. Probably a large percentage of those come from Jade as well and all over the country. And then as well as doing the resales, we also do take on training and consignment horses, whether that's a problem thoroughbred that just needs some help or it's an actual comes into the training program to be resold. We don't take on consignments just off the cuff. Like they go into a training program. We just find they need a little tune-up to go onto the sales market anyways. So we found that's the best bet. And yeah, otherwise that's what we do. We live on a small farm, 12 acres here in Texas with a lot of chickens, my husband and my son, and play with thoroughbreds all the time. So that's us. Uh, living the dream. Farm, lots of chickens, lots of thoroughbreds. That sounds <laughs> lots great. of chickens, a sheep, and some cows, too. <laughs> Little funny farm going on here. I love that. <laughs> well, it sounds like everybody gets their horses from Jade. So, Jade, tell us a little bit about your business model and what you do. Yeah, this is Jade. Um, I don't really have a name for my program, I guess. My website is Jade Farm Sport Horses. But I basically strictly rehome from the track. 90% of the time, I'm a listing agent. But I, I do take the occasional one and, and you know, like I just took one and did surgery on it and did 30-day stall rest and then found them a home. But I'm strictly mostly a listing agent. And I do about 150 a year. I think maybe a little bit more last year. But like everyone else said, um, you know, it's all thoroughbreds. 
like Aubrey said, sometimes you have to sit back and think, why am I doing this? Because it'll drive you crazy. But uh, I love it. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. J- uh, being Facebook friends with Jade is like a bad situation if you're <laughs> an impulsive horse buyer. <laughs> Just from the, the kind of horses that you have uh, coming and going. So originally, like we wanted to talk about like, oh, what do you guys like to see in prospects? And we'll get to that. But I have a different question that I was thinking of as I was, you know, doing my own farm chores today. Um, and it it feels a little bit sometimes in this industry, like there's almost a stigma against saying that we buy and sell thoroughbreds. Like somehow, once they're retired from racing, like they need to be like the property of a nonprofit and the the like more suitable word is adopt. But that's not really what you guys are doing, right? Because to me, adoption means that a horse goes through a nonprofit and that there's, you know, a process with that. So what, like, let's talk terminology for a minute or two, and I'll go right back into alphabetical order again and start with Aubrey. Do you use the word adopt? Do you use the word sell and buy? Like, and do you think it matters? So that's a really interesting question. And I'm a complete nerd when it comes to terminology and things like this too. And I really spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Um, I really, in terms of the industry that I'm in, I think everybody else is in for this, though I don't want to speak for anybody, is you know the term rescue definitely does not apply to what I do. Right? There are a couple cases, maybe. But most of the time, because rescue doesn't apply and adopt seems like I wouldn't be making any money. Somebody, I would need backfires. I would need a different business plan. And it just doesn't seem to fit what I'm doing, which is really just buying and selling, right? Like, so uh, there's a lot of retraining that goes into it. So horses are, you know, on my page, Facebook doesn't let you, it's where we mostly sell these horses, right? Um, But it doesn't let you use the words like for sale most of the time. And it doesn't allow you to put prices up there. So things like saying, available horses, right? Like, but I do, I do sell them. Um, and I think these horses are worth the money that they're going out the door for. And I also think they're worth the money that I'm paying to get them in the door. And so sometimes with adoptions, you start thinking like lower fees, like lower prices. And I think a lot of the, the U S market, you know, coming out of the nineties and early two thousands, were really accustomed to, as you said, like horses going through these, um, nonprofits where you could get a a nice thoroughbred for, you know, $500. And the market is very different when we're actually, you know, valuing them without the backfires, without the support and having had to put cash up front to get these horses to the door as well. So I think there's, there's a lot with that. And yeah, basically I just use, you know, yep. I'm, you know, recently bought a horse from Jade and I will turn him around and he will be for sale and available and all of the other words that we will sub in there to make it, you know, Facebook appropriate to be able to get these horses to new homes, which is another type of thing that we say, or at least I say, right. You want them to get to new families, new homes, but they, they don't get to go there for adoption prices, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a good point that I think, you know, like so much, marketing happens on social media that we do sort of have to jump through hoops, you know, of like, <laughs> you can say this, you can't say that you can have a link to a third party website, but you can't, you know, have a ad that originates on like, you know, whatever we've all mm-hmm. figured out our workarounds. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. So Jade, in your experience, how does that work? I mean, first of all, how does that work? Because I know a lot of your business is done over Facebook, but what kind of language do you use? Do you say, you know, this horse is for sale or is this horse up for adoption? I don't 
really ever say up for adoption, but I'd say I'm probably somewhere in the middle because rehoming directly from the track, I do oftentimes have ones that have say a bow or a chip or they need rehab, but those are usually freebies. So I'm not necessarily selling those, but for the most part, I sell them, but I, like I said, I'm probably somewhere in between. And I usually try to link my website because like Aubrey said, Facebook, there was a point in time where they were really cracking down. It doesn't seem like they're doing that anymore. So I just usually put like available at the very top. And then if they are free, I try to include that in the ad, you know, free to good home with references and a contract or, or whatever. And then if they, someone sends me money, I mark them pending. And usually whenever they leave, I mark them as sold. So that's kind of how I do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I also wonder too, if like, and I haven't actually looked into this, but if there is like a legal definition for adopt, I don't know, Joy, do you know anything about that? <laughs> I might just sort of be like, sort of pulling at threads there, but you know, like yeah. if you get it from a nonprofit, it is an adoption versus mm-hmm. a purchase. If you get it from, you know, from a, a reseller. reseller. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's just sort of what I assume, but I don't know. So Christina, how about you? How does that work into your business plan? Is, are they adoptions yeah. or purchases? No, they're definitely purchases. I mean, I think we've evolved in the re- the aftercare industry to where we're able to branch out. And you guys at Retired Racehorse Project have done a good job in like creating demand for these horses and showcasing that there used to be a stigma with adoption of like, we're stepping these horses down, they're broken, they're beat up, you know, they are adopted, they are rescued, you know, and I think that we've educated the public enough now to where we know like these are lovely, talented horses that have had a great start on the track. Many cases have been immaculately taken care of. We have obviously, like Jade said, the bows, the chips, I have the most beautiful oscillate I got from Jade and we both love her. But that doesn't mean those aren't even good sport horse prospects. So even those with injuries, we can still market as for sale. You know, um, Mm -hmm. we don't, I strictly will not ever give away a horse. If a horse is in a situation where it has to be given away from me, it will be care lease and I will always retain ownership of it. I just don't trust what could happen to the horses I give away. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just a way for me to retain ownership. So I am still in control of that horse. Um, if it ever comes to that, it doesn't come to that often. But yeah, no, we definitely do sales and we're selling nice sport horse prospects. Same with Aubrey, same with Jade. Obviously, she has the ones that are rehab cases as well, but that doesn't even that doesn't even make them a, not a sport horse prospect. It just makes them a different kind of prospect. So I think we just there's been an evolution and adoption is still an awesome thing. And there's so many horses that you have to do it from every avenue, right? Like resellers can't do it all. Nonprofits can't do it all. So I think everybody's, you know, transitioning to placing these horses at second careers and not necessarily as rescues, except the handful of cases we see. Mm, Yeah, I think that's key. And I think that's, you know, like, that's a little bit of the angle that RRP takes, right? Is that there's just not enough room at the nonprofits that we have that are established to take all these horses in. And to be fair, no one really knows. I mean, not even RRP. We do we can to try to get a handle on the number, but like nobody knows how many horses are coming off the track every year because no one's keeping track of that number. And there isn't a good way to keep track of that number. Like horses just sort of don't get entered anymore and you don't really know where they went. So nobody knows how many horses are coming off, but we do know that there's just not enough room for any one branch of this industry to take them all. 
So I think, you know, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this panel because we do, you know, we work with new vocations on this podcast and talk about adoption a lot, but I think it is one route of many that horses can take to get to a second career. So cool. Yeah. Great insight, ladies. Thank you so much for that. Um, Okay. So now we do want to know like what you guys are looking for specifically for a good resale prospect. So Christina, I'll send it back to you. Is there anything in particular that you like that you're like, ah, that's the one? I think as a reseller, you end up getting a almost a gut and an instinct feeling. Obviously, we love a lovely confirmation, an uphill build, nicely put together horse. I think the biggest thing is I can deal with a little downhill if they're young enough. They're probably going to grow out of it. Just clean legs for the most part or disclosed injuries. Like if I know there's an injury and we can take a quick x-ray or something and I feel like I can place that or they can have a good career. I don't mind taking on something with a little something here or there, but I think clean legs, no, not being over at the knees, not having gigantic ankles all the time. Of course, I'll take on those ones here and there. Sound baseline, good mover. Uh, if we can, we'll try and watch the races and look at the canner, but yeah, just a nicely built horse. I have some bloodlines that I love, you know, Dixieland band. Um, now, now, now is a salient to my RRP horse from last year. And I actually have three in my barn right now that I'm just absolutely in love with what he throws. So it kind of evolves as we see the bloodlines changing as we're breeding these horses. I think everybody has their favorites, favorite sires, favorite dams. And yeah, I think a lot goes into it, but I think there's, again, there's so many to pick from that we don't get hung up on one thing or another. You kind of have to judge each horse case by case. And what you think you can do with them. But I think soundness and clean legs is a big influence. Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to your uh, recent article in Pollock Report on bloodlines. I thought that was a really cool insight. Uh, so everybody go check that out at Pollock Report. Christina's featured in an I article didn't... about bloodlines. Oh, that's I didn't out. even know that was in there yet. So oh, I did yeah. that in Kentucky last year. So I'll have to go look <laughs> at it now. Yeah. Yeah. We shared it on the RRP page too this week. So yeah, everybody awesome. go, go take a peek. <laughs> Aubrey, how about you? What do you like to look for in a prospect? I feel like you have a type, but I don't know if that's just because I've been Facebook friends with you long enough that I see <laughs> all your horses over and over again. So Christina nailed a lot of the like intelligent aspects of that, right? Like you want clean legs, you want a lovely confirmation uphill, good hip, good shoulder. Obviously things that are flashy will sell better usually. Um, so if I'm thinking strictly about resale, you know, bays with Chrome or, you know, I'll get to my type in a second, you know, occasionally I will buy a gray. I love chestnuts. I, I, idiot for redheads. I always have been, um, but they don't have the best resale. So they're actually not necessarily the smart move, but they're my gut move on a regular basis where I'm like, yep, that's great. It's either plain bays or chestnuts. So sometimes, you know, and this gets to one of the, the questions that may come up later, you know, your heart meddles with your head a bit when you buy these horses and, but you do have a gut feeling. And often I will make purchases in one of two ways. One being, this is going to be an excellent amateur horse. Like, I think this horse could be retrained to go do all of the things. And there are bloodlines I like for that. There's a look I like for that. There's a way the horse kind of engages with the world that I look for. And I don't just do buying online. I have a couple of race farms and trainers that I work directly with, which I'm sure Christina does as well. But a lot of people do that when they say, 
hey, this horse is coming off. Half the time, I don't even look at photos or videos. I'm just like, cool, when can we get it on a trailer? And because I trust them and they have great horses. And sometimes I'm absolutely surprised at the like amazingly wonderful quality of something that, you know, I just kind of took a guess at and was like, yeah, I think that will be great. Um, and there are other times, like a lot of times with trusting your gut, you just go, well, there's something about this one. I can't put a, you know, pin in it, but maybe I'll sit on it for a couple of days and think, and usually that horse ends up selling very quickly. And you're like, okay, great. Well, that made my decision easy, but yes, I do. So I have two types, right? I have the Amy friendly type that I try to purchase and bring in retrain and move a little quicker. And then I have my, I'm an idiot and I fall in love with these horses type where they are often a little bit more difficult. They're sometimes a little more what we would quote unquote say upper levely, which is not, doesn't mean that they're capable of the upper levels, but they're quirky and they're talented and they're a little bit tough. And those are the ones that I absolutely ridiculously love. And I will take a little longer with the training and then sometimes usually because of their personality and their athleticism, they take a little longer to place. So I, I tend to have two different streams running at once with that. And there's a little bit of a type for each one. Nice. I feel like that's the type I see you on at the makeover, like the one mm-hmm. that's been with you longer. Or the one that, I don't know, got like 60 days of retraining and well, the makeover that might've too, been yeah. my 20, 25th ride on it because I'm smart. <laughs> was that when I sassed you last year? And I was like, don't encourage people to do that. <laughs> Not everyone can do what you do. <laughs> That may, that so may or may gonna... not have been right, right after that mare broke my nose. It's okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, dear. Um, so sort of a modification of that question for Jade, because I know, you know, your business model is a little bit different, Jade, than that you're listing horses. But do you get the option to kind of pick and choose what you want to list? Or are you just sort of like a take all comers kind of service? Uh, for the most part, I list everything that people call me about. There are a few people that I do not work with, you know, for whatever reasons. But for the most part, I work with anybody that calls me. And I mostly have my trainers that I've been dealing with for the last five years. But you know, your number gets passed around and you have people call and they're like, hey, I got your number from so and so I have this horse. And you know, I go look at the horse, whatever. But I love working with my people that I've been working with for five years. For sure. But, and I also, I haven't much this year gone to training, but usually I go to training in the morning and I will pick out horses. Um, I did that with Brit's horse nightmare that she competed on last year. I, I bought her stallion Houdini to be a racehorse and he's the slowest creature ever, but <laughs> he is one of the fanciest I've ever seen. So I don't know if I should be proud of myself. Or if I should be ashamed for buying him to be a racehorse. I don't know. But so I do get to pick here and there because I'll be like, oh, I love that horse. But for the most part, it's just whoever calls me to go look at their horse. I go look and and see what I can do about it. Nice. And are people generally pretty receptive to that? You know, if you're like, hey, that's a really nice horse. I think I could help you if it, you know, if it comes time to retire. For the most part, yes. And I try not like... (laughs) you know, say the horse goes and runs last and it's one I've been following, you know, you don't really want to like text them right after the race and be like, Hey, I love, love that horse. Can I sell it for you? Cause some trainers kind of get in a bad mood about it. So I like try to wait until the next day. And I'm just like, Hey, just a reminder. I love that horse. You know, when it's ready, let me know. And 99% of the time they're like, yeah, you know, I want it off the bill because they're just so expensive to keep in training. 
but um mm-hmm. you catch your occasional one that that isn't as receptive as you'd like yeah which i guess like fair <laughs> that's their that's yeah, their job I and mean, that's what they're trying to work on but <laughs> right and some people just keep them longer than they should you know like Justin, my fiance, he he's kind of like a three strikes and you're out. And sometimes they get one strike and they're out. And sometimes they don't even get a strike. So we don't really hang on to him for very long. But you have some trainers who they'll just hold on to him for two or three years and, and keep holding out hope that they'll win a race. Gosh, yeah. those are not my yeah, favorite yeah. trainers. That makes me sad. Right. Yeah, we've seen horses like that come into the makeover, you know, where the horse has run 37 times and it's still never broken its maiden. And you're like, what? What? Yeah. Uh, like, like what how- made you keep trying that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I don't understand how people afford to do it. It's just so expensive to keep them in training. That's why I'm always like, hey, you know, I can get you, you know, X amount of dollars for this horse and it'll be out your barn. So I kind of mm-hmm. sometimes appeal to them that way. And it, it works most of the time. Well, I think that's a key point too, is that, you know, like I think the adoption model works well for owners who can afford to donate the horse to an organization that will, Mm -hmm. you know, do any necessary rehab retraining and adoption, but this reselling or listing option allows that trainer to retain some income on that. You know, it's not going to be the same as if it had a successful race career, but they're still going to get an exchange of value for that animal especially if it retires sound before they run For it, sure. you know, 40 more times. So, yeah. yeah. So I think it is, you know, a, a necessary part of the aftercare industry because, you know, that model of donation doesn't work for everybody. So interesting. I'm also finding this very interesting, like writing down notes in some way, because I even think for someone who's not doing this full time, knowing what's in the market and what people are looking for could be helpful if they're interested in doing the thoroughbred makeover, but no, they can't keep a horse long term. So Mm -hmm. I'll work Mm -hmm. backwards and start with Jade. What do you find is like your target market and what type of horse are they looking for? Like, what are you training for? I feel like I mostly sell to your venters, jumpers, dressage type. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't sell as much to, you know, the hunter people. Occasionally, they'll really like one and they'll buy it. But for the most part, um, eventers, jumpers, some Western uh, and, and brood mares too, because sometimes I come across mares that look very good and and in time will be okay. But maybe they have a little something that will mm-hmm. prohibit them from going right into a sport horse home. Mm-hmm. But definitely for the most part eventing jumping occasionally like i sent one the other day i looked at the horse twice and i said this horse is just so quiet i'm like he and he was kind of scraggly looking i mean he he was very well bred but he was in a trainer's barn that takes good care of them but like it doesn't look like something coming out of our barn Mm -hmm. and so i actually had a a lady in texas that had been looking for her teenage daughter and she had inquired about a couple. And I just said, Hey, I I don't think those that's the right fit, but this gelding, I was like, this one might work for you. So she bought them and we were working with the trainer and she sent me a picture of them a couple of days ago. The little girl's already on them. She's got a big smile on her face. Um, you know, he'll probably never go do anything big or, or do anything really, but Mm -hmm. I think he's probably doing what he needs to do. So, I mean, I, they go into a lot of things from me for sure. Yeah. But I definitely feel like the eventing jumper 
people are what mostly buy them. Good to know. And Christina, how about you? What do you feel like is your target market or demographic and what are they looking for in a horse? Like adult AME friendly, junior friendly, people who are looking to go up levels. Yeah, absolutely. I would say 85% of the horses are sold as either AME or junior friendly. Um, that is primarily the market for the off the track thoroughbreds that I find. Um locally and not locally. Mm-hmm. I'll have a few pros occasionally, but the pros are mainly looking for a nice upper level event type. Um, and those are still really realistically a nice upper level event type is still going to have a really good brain. So really we're looking for a horse with a good brain and they get pretty mm-hmm. marketable based on their movement, their style of jump, their bravery over fences, how willing they are to do the job. There's some horses that don't love the jumping and will sell them occasionally as dressage horses. Those are harder to market. I find that the dressage world hasn't quite come across the across the road into the thoroughbred mm-hmm. market. I mean, it is a little bit and it's definitely growing. I have found recently, obviously, eventers, jumpers, easy to sell for. A horse has a good brain. Even if it's a little hot forward, we have a nice jumper market for that. I've seen in the last six months a big growth in hunter prospects for the take two thoroughbred classes are helping to bring that alive in the A circuits. And I think RP, the hunters have really stepped up at the thoroughbred makeover to really be top notch hunters. And so I think that the hunter world is coming around to that because not everybody has what they call a warm blood budget. So these trainers mm-hmm. are seeing these nicely turn out hunters and they're starting to be more and more willing to take on a thoroughbred because they see that they can turn into these really high quality horses that can even compete in the derbies against the warm blood. So yeah, definitely amateur friendly are the biggest selling, um, occasional pros, but definitely English disciplines. I'll have an occasional Western ride. I'll want a barrel prospect, but typically I don't have what they're looking for. They're too big. And Aubrey, how about you? What are you seeing for your target markets? Well, hard to follow on both of these. That's great. And um, basically feels very similar to um, Christina with that in that most of this is, you know, horses being marketed to an amateur market and sometimes a junior market and, you know, a smaller percentage of often young pros, sometimes, you know, more established pro riders. But um, I've had a few come through that are, on the kind of more up and coming, starting their businesses, really want to get a nice horse under the belt that they can get out there and show that they can train and do the things. And that's, that's really fun to be involved in those markets. I will take, because we've, you know, Christina covered a lot of that, right. And same with Jade, it's the, often the eventing and jumper market, sometimes the hunters. And sometimes it's interesting. because I've talked to resellers around the country and I had someone approach me the other day and they're like, Hey, would you help me list horses? And I was like, sure, let's chat. Like, look, I haven't done this before, but I can figure this out. And their comment was, we're getting a lot of people who are not quite athletic enough for these horses. And we feel like Mm. you're bringing in a different market. And so all that did and like that kind of comment aside, but it, it made me realize that different parts of the country, different are getting different demographics of people looking for horses and how you market them. So it's fun to hear that like Christine and I are are marketing to a very similar market. Um, Obviously Jade doing a little bit of different work and also selling to a bunch of us three homers along the way. But it's fun to kind of think through like, I wonder why that is in other parts and other areas that people are getting people, uh, you know, more or less versed or ready for these types of horses. 
And it does kind of swing this question around to the the fun that we get to do where we have to kind of be like, I don't know if that horse is appropriate for you, which is one of the conversations that I get to have on a semi-regular basis where it's like, all right, let's see what people are really looking for. And often it's that lovely, amateur-friendly People will say kick ride, which is not something I'm comfortable with in the thoroughbred world because I think they mm-hmm. all have a motor at a certain point, and it's not a bad motor. I, look, I think their motors are great. They don't have to be hot, but like kick ride makes me think of like the drafts that I've had through. Yeah, where I'm like, like I feel like a thoroughbred teaches you to be soft. Like you have to learn to be a soft rider, which is what we should be learning to do. Absolutely. And I have a my big gray horse Uno that I got from Jade. Actually, um, his name is Holden Paul, and he is he's fantastic but people show up wanting to he weighs like 1500 pounds he's giant um he's a 17 hand gray thoroughbred they think they need to carry a dressage with a worse person like please take all of that off don't touch him he's sensitive right and he's he's mm-hmm. lovely but he's still a sensitive ride so it's it's trying to find those buyers and that market where people want the motor and that's why a lot of the ventures and jumpers i think are so keen for uh, these lovely off-track thoroughbreds is they want the motor and they know the trainability the heart the brain, the athleticism, all the things are already there. It's that I want an off the track thoroughbred, but I need it to be a kick ride. I kind of start going, huh. And every once in a while, I absolutely will have one where I'm like, it is, everybody can ride it. Like, and, but they're, they're a little bit rarer of what I have in my kind of, my wonderful land of misfit toys and really nice thoroughbreds that all kind of merge in this farm. I'm just laughing because it, it makes me think of this video this one time of, one of my favorite horses that we ever had. We actually broke him at the track and there's a video that I have of him. He had just turned around and was going to break off to gallop. And our uh, gallop boy was like pony club kicking him and super <laughs> huntery mover. And like everyone thought that was hilarious. And they were like, oh, he wants to be a hunter. He wants to be a hunter. And he actually has made, I think, close to 200,000 and is like probably a, six or seven time winner now um but you talked about being a kick ride just made me laugh because i thought of that video where he was like pony club kicking him and we thought he was going to be so slow and uh <laughs> and ended up not being but continue all right yeah uh, i feel very seen by that comment of like people who maybe aren't athletic enough to ride thoroughbreds so <laughs> i feel very called out by that and i don't appreciate it so I'm squ- sitting here squinting at my phone for that one. Are you kidding me, woman? Um, <laughs> I know. I was like, I, I don't think we're talking about you, Krista. No. no, no. It's fine. <laughs> my February self is like, nope, I'm not athletic enough. To have it's, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So this is maybe a little bit of a, well, I think it's going to be spicy and it probably won't be as spicy as I think it is. Um, you ladies, especially who are in the reselling business, how does it feel to see that the prices of horses coming right off the track is going up? Because that is a statistic that the RRP in particular is pretty proud of because, you know, we see a direct correlation between the value of horses retiring from racing going up with, you know, the success of events like the thoroughbred makeover and the increased interest in thoroughbreds. So to us, that's a good thing. But if your business model is in acquiring horses and then, you know, putting work into them and then reselling them, how does that fit into your business model? Aubrey, we'll just go back to you. Cool. Um, Actually, I'm thrilled that they're going up. And I say that partially because I'm a terrible business person. Also, because I'm 100% doing this and in this business for the horses, right? Like I, 
I love every minute of every chaotic day with these animals and it's literally seven days a week. Um, so I'm a very like strangely happy human with this, but I don't necessarily make the best or do the best business decisions. And so knowing that they're coming off of the track with an elevated price, it does cut into my margins significantly. It makes it harder to buy the nice horses that you have to have more connections. You have to be able to move faster. You have to, and then you have to just hope that somebody's willing to let you have them for a price that makes sense in your budget. And so sometimes I just straight up miss out on horses because I just can't afford them. And that's, and that sucks. And other times I will pay more than I probably should, which is still not that much, but I'm really excited to see that their value is there, right? Because that means that across the nation, people are really seeing that these horses have a good shot at a second career. It is a, you know, it is almost like a buoy or a lifeline for them going forward when something is so cheap people are much more willing to throw it away and so when it comes off the track when these guys come off the track and people are paying real money for nice horses i mean um jessica redmond listed one i think she listed him for eighteen thousand the other day straight off the track as from her reselling and he was outstanding and that just makes me really happy um and that was like she had put one ride on him right she was like she got him in she paid a fair amount for him and put one ride on him and sent him out and i have so much respect for her business and how she does things and And it, but it's tough because here's the squeeze is that, you know, if I spend 3,500 for a horse off the track and then I pay to ship it home, I have over $4,000 in the horse before it gets here. And I'm still approached by people on a day-to-day basis saying, do you have anything for the low fours, right? Low fours being like two, $3,000. And it's like, no, I've already put more than that into these horses. and I haven't even sat on them, let alone all of the vet stuff will go through the, you know, 30 plus, well, in my case, 36 years of riding experience that you're getting every time I sit on one of these things. It's, it's hard to, I think, I guess the squeeze on my end is it's hard to convince people that then they are worth what I'm asking. And you have to really put that time and effort in. It takes a lot of good marketing. It takes a lot of good photography. And I know a lot of people in the industry, we just get inundated with these asks for let lower prices than we can buy off the track. And so business-wise, it's difficult, but I'm thrilled for the horses. I'm just also really excited for the knock-on effect when people start to realize that the cost of them through a, a retrainer, a reseller, a rehomer, where we're putting the time into them, that cost increase is is not a questioned thing, right? It's assumed that of course they would come off at this and then you've taken them for you know three months or however long you've had them. To 12 days, whatever it is. And that's the cost that we're, you're offering them. And that's fantastic. And sometimes I get that. And sometimes there's still a bit of pushback against it. And you can see it in the groups and the pages and things like that. So anyway, I'll be interested to hear what you guys have to say with that too. Well, and that makes sense because like what people are purchasing at that point is not just the horse, but they're purchasing your professional insight and assessment and, you know, like eyes on this thing. Like, you know, I, I haven't had enough thoroughbreds that I don't know that I'm completely comfortable going and buying one right off the track, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, that that's, that's what I'd be looking to pay for is like Aubrey's assessment that this horse is ready for me, you know, and your like matchmaking abilities. So interesting. Right. It's, it's yeah. that, it's that, it's the matchmaking, but then it's also, you know, and I know Christina does this a lot too, is we'll have some of these horses here. I mean, hell I've had Uno for, almost a year, right? So some of them stick around a lot longer. And then, and it's trying to play that game of where do you price them 
based on how long they've been there and how much training you've put in, because now you have a trained horse, not just a, Hey, I've put a couple rides on it and assessed it horse. So you kind of get these different price points and amounts of also just straight up training work that goes into it. So, right. And it is like, I get where people might be coming from, right? Like, okay, well the track trainer who had it or the track owner, he might've paid $75,000 for it as a yearling and he's not getting his return. So like, you know, why can't I also get it for cheaper than, you know? So yeah, like not ethically, but like, you know, you can kind of like put yourself into that rabbit hole of like, whose dollar does it come down to? So yeah. Interesting debate. Christina, how about you? All right. So to unmute myself that time. Um, yeah, I think Aubrey hit the nail on the head. We're, I'm thrilled for the track trainers, for the owners that they're getting more money for these horses when they retire. It just means like, again, we've changed the market's mentality towards these horses as they're retiring. Like they're not broken. They're lovely sport horses. Yes. As a reseller, just 3,500 seem like a gut punch sometimes to get a really nice horse. Absolutely. Because it's a business. It does 3,500 for me going to shop for my own potential prospects sound like a lot off the track? No. So I think you have to put it into perspective of who's doing the buying and everything. So I'm thrilled the prices are coming up. I think that means everyone's done their job, even the resellers, right? We've produced lovely horses. We've put them out there. We've marketed to where people see what can come off the track. Great for listing agents like Jade who work their their booties off going around the track to, you know, list these horses gives them a little more money in their pocket, you know, as a commission. So it's really good for everybody. I mean, even for us, if I pay that much for a horse, it's probably more valuable in the long run. I just bought a really lovely bay gelding, paid more than I normally would for him, had an investor step up to help me with him because I just had a gut instinct and I thought he was lovely. And for the first ride on him yesterday, worth every penny, you know, it may take me a little longer to get what I need for him. Um, but I think people just need to realize with resellers, you're you're eliminating so much risk, right? So like, I feel like we will always have a place and our prices will always be justified because we've swung our leg over the horse the first time, right? You don't know what you're going to get when you come straight off the track. You don't get to go sit on those horses, So we've swung over again, you've given a professional evaluation of the horse. You've got years of expertise in multiple disciplines to kind of say, okay, this horse is suitable for this, that, and the other, you know, you're looking at a a split second on the track. You're looking at less than 30 seconds of jog and a few pictures to buy one. So I still think there always will be a value in the resale industry and the adoption industry. You can just gain so much more information about that horse. So just because prices come up off the track doesn't mean that our prices aren't going to come up also. And I don't know about Aubrey's experience, but I know mine. I've talked a little bit to Jessica as well. I know that we've all started to increase our prices to reflect that. So I think it's just like inflation and anything. You know, one thing goes up and the next thing goes up. Cattle prices go up, meat prices go up. So I think we'll see that throughout the resale industry. And yes, there will be growing pains, but I don't think no reseller I talk to is upset about it. Like Aubrey said, sometimes we have to pass. Sometimes we just don't have the money for that in our budget and it stinks, but you know, the horse will sell, the horse will get a lovely home and that's what we're all in it for. So. Yeah. That's a more upbeat take than like, I mean, you're both very positive people, so I wasn't (laughs) expecting anything too doom and gloom, but you know, we, there is 
we sort of see it like anecdotally, you know, on social media that people are like, well, the price for the retrained ones hasn't come up. So it's too hard to make a living doing this. And, you know, I do think that there is a, a bit of a trickle up, I guess, with that, you know, but yeah, as you said, maybe it's just a little, like, it, it's not going to all happen at the same time. Right. So, but if people are appreciating the value and willing to pay for the time and the energy that you've put in, you know, that that'll catch up eventually too. So that's, that's good to hear. And those are the kind of buyers we want to handle anyways, right? Like we want those people who are appreciating what we're doing and realistic. And that's why people go to resellers versus straight to the track, because some people have had bad experiences. Some people just like you, Kristen, you're saying, I don't feel like comfortable going to the track yet. Like I don't know enough about the horses to make a judgment off a 30 second video. So I don't think, I don't think our businesses are going away because of the prices. I just think our, we may see a slowdown, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Well, and to add, it's a fraction of these imported warm bloods or even some of the quarter horses in the market. I think people need to put in perspective. There's a lot of love care and veterinary bills and training fees and shows to get these horses in a place where they are ready uh, to mm-hmm. go to those adult amateur friendly or junior Amy friendly homes. Yeah, good point. So Jade, you're probably like the most like boots on the ground at the track. So I am interested in your experience and your, you know, years doing this. Have you like, how much have prices come up? I guess like we, we uh, know from what we're measuring that we think they're coming up, but like you're right. there. <laughs> so you tell yeah. us. <laughs> well, I feel like my prices have stayed pretty similar. Um, you know, they maybe gone up a little bit, but for me, most of the trainers tell me, Hey, you price them. And most of the time they're priced to move because most people don't realize that at the track you have limited stalls and you have owners that are paying anywhere from 70 to $120 a day for a horse at the track. So, you know, you can price them at 3000 and you can wait for them to sell for 10 to 14 days, or you can price them for 2000 and you can have them sold in that day or the next day. So for me, like I'm kind of looking out for the owner in that aspect because, you know, my husband trains, so I know what it's like to be an owner. It's very expensive. So I don't want to sit there and try and get extra money when in reality, it's not extra money. If that makes any sense. Yeah. That does make sense. Yeah. I, I try and price them. I don't want to say, like where they just sell to anybody, but I try and price them where they're going to go to the right home, but they're not going to sit around for two weeks. Um, but I feel like the prices have, have come up a little bit in the five years I've been doing it here. And I have the occasional trainer that'll be like, I want 5,000 for this horse. Um, interesting. And I'll be like, well, you know, I mean, you might be able to get that, you know, you might, um, you might have to sit on it for a little while, which one guy did, but he, I think he still ended up selling her for like four, but he had to sit on her for like a month and a half. I'm like, why wouldn't you have just sold her for four from the get go? And then you wouldn't have mm-hmm. had to hold her for a month and a half. Right. So for me, I'm trying to price them where they can get into their new home. Um, the trainer gets their stall. Uh, the owner isn't paying $70 for a horse to just sit in a stall. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And that, you know, that sort of service aspect, you know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do for the horse, which is, you know, a very horse positive way to be. So great. 
Well, ladies, this has been really, really interesting. I feel like, Joy, we should have them all back on again for like another one. In Absolutely. Because this is really fun. I feel like, you know, I mean, we had a list of like eight, nine other questions that we could get to, but we'll keep these ladies around all night. So we better, we better not. So we'll just round table, go around one more time. Um, and you guys can just remind us where to find you on the internet, any social media presence you have so that uh, listeners who want to learn more can give you a follow. So Jade, we'll start with you. Uh, so almost all of my listings are on Facebook and I, I do try to keep my website up to date, but I'm not the best at it. Uh, but it is jadefarbsporthorses.com and that's basically it. Facebook and it are basically all I do. All right. Good to know. Easy to find lots of lovely horses coming across your feed. Christina, how about you? Yeah. So we are website work in progress. I am three years behind on that. Um, too much time in the barn, but you can find us on Facebook. Our business page is kept super current with the horses. It's reciprocity thoroughbreds. Um, and my name, Christina Hobbs, if you can't seem to spell that the right way, you can look for my name and then it'll be linked through my personal page. So we keep those really active and try and keep you posted as quick as we can when they come in and when they're placed. Lovely. And Aubrey, where can people find you? Great. So people can find me at my website, which is kivusporthorses.com. And that I have to spell because nobody's going to get it. It's K-I-V-U. That's a nod to the province in the Congo where, well, Democratic Republic of the Congo, where I did my field work as an anthropologist. So it confuses everyone. Um, but that is my sales page there is very, very, very current. And I keep that up to date. And then otherwise, it's on social media at Facebook. I put most things out there under my personal page, which is AP Graham or AP Graham Eventing um, has most of the listings as well. And that's the same name for Instagram. All right. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, really cool. And I hope listeners enjoyed this as well. It's definitely a deep dive into a different side of the thoroughbred industry. And we have so much more we could cover. So maybe we'll have you all back on again sometime. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you, guys. I'm here with Tony from Cashel. You all know it from the ads you hear all the time on this show. But I, we're at the trade show, and this is the p- point of time in the year where we find out what's new coming out. So what's Cashel have new coming out? Oh, we've got a, a great lineup of uh, 32, 34 wool top pads. So t- describe them. Uh, five different colors, real vibrant, bright, sharp-looking pads. What, are the, what makes them different? Uh, well, it's the fill. The, the, the wool felt on the inside is a natural felt, and the fleece on the bottom is a 100% merino. Oh, really? Okay. So these are soft and squishy pads. Well, not real squishy, but soft, and, and they do absorb shock and, and saddle fit. What would they retail for? What are those? That's you about know? 119 That's the right price. Yeah. Anything else new with Cashel coming out? Oh, we've got uh, more saddle pads coming in the fall, a uh, new strap line coming in the fall. It's uh, a two-tone that looks great with a, a great buckle set on it. There's, we're always in development, so there's so many things, projects in the works. What's still your most popular product? Is it still always the same things year after year? Uh, fly. You've got yeah, fly, fly that's protection what we all, what's, always That's it. how I knew you in the first place was fly. Fly masks. Yep. Yeah, many years ago, uh, we were primarily fly masks and kind of had some tush cushions and a few odds and ends. Today, we've broadened that offering to saddlebags, uh, strap, 
head stalls, breast collars, bell boots, um, leg protection, and the, the it continues to grow. Is there a place where somebody can go and see all the products? Uh, Cashelcompany.com will give you a good offering. There you go. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been fun seeing you again. Hey, thank you. Good to see you. Well, Joy, that panelist discussion really got me thinking because that is very much the theme of the Retired Resource Project's Aftercare Industry Month, uh, which is running now through the month of February. Um, the Aftercare Industry Month is geared towards every part of aftercare, not just you know the nonprofit and adoption side, which is I think where most people in the industry tend to go. Um, and I feel like we just kind of got like a like a almost a mini introduction in that panel discussion, which was really cool. By the time this episode comes out on February 10th, the first session for Aftercare Industry Month will have already taken place. And it is exactly about what we just discussed about making aftercare your full-time job. But there are still three great sessions ahead in Aftercare Industry Month and registration is still open. So you can register either for individual sessions that sound interesting to you, or you can just pay one small fee and register for the whole month. Um, And then all recordings will be available as well. So that's for anyone with any level of professional interest in aftercare. Head to the rrp.org slash aftercare dash industry dash month to learn more. We continue our Barn Building 101 series with Morton Buildings. In this segment, Glenn chats with Dennis about the style of horse stalls available. Welcome to Barn Building 101, brought to you by Morton Buildings at mortonbuildings.com. Well, Glenn here, founder of the Horse Radio Network and host of Horses in the Morning, and we are continuing our educational series right now on building yourself a barn that you're going to be happy with from now into the future. As you know, we've done a couple of these educational series, one on insurance and one on trailers that have proved to be very popular, and you guys wanted to hear about barns. So in this part two, we have Dennis Lee with us. He's equestrian product line manager at Morton Buildings, and in this part, we're going to discuss the style of horse stall that you want. There's so many different styles. And if you missed part one, go to horseradionetwork.com slash barn to take a listen. Well, talking about stalls, Dennis, there are so many things to think about. And of course, materials you're making out of it is one of the one of the things, you know, size and all that stuff's important. But also, what what are the walls? What are the doors? What's everything made out of? Yeah, so that's a huge consideration for uh for your clients to to, to make, you know, we want to build a, a safe, uh, very functional, as well as a stylish stall. Uh, you know, your horse spends the, the majority of their time in a barn in a stall. Uh, the majority of injuries in stall barns occur in the stall. So, you know, the, the quality of materials is absolutely paramount in a horse stall. The number one cause of injury in stall barns is actually a backed out fastener in your stall lumber. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're using a, a heavy duty ring shank hand drive nail or a, a good heavy duty structural screw. Many builders will use nail guns just for, for speed and cost. And those nail gun nails will almost immediately start to back out. And you, know, you can have, you know, sorts of injuries from backed out fasteners. Uh, the lumber your stall is built from, we use a number one grade Southern yellow pine tongue and groove two by eight. Uh, many builders will use uh, either just a, a spruce pine fir or a lower quality uh, softwood type of square edge plank for, for cost. Um, yellow pine is the strongest of all the softwoods, so that's the reason that we use it. Uh, and many builders will use a tongue and groove board in the stall front for aesthetics only. 
Whereas we use a tongue and groove board throughout the entirety of the stall so that the two boards lock together to help prevent separation or splintering when a stall uh, is is kicked. Doors is a <laughs> this is a one that we've had this uh, discussion on our show before, and that's sliding doors versus hinged doors. And it's kind of one of those discussions that people either fall one side or the other. Uh, what do you find when you're when you're having that discussion with people? That that's a very uh, very polarizing uh, opinion. Typically, <laughs> I've had so, both, and I could argue for both in court. I really exactly. Yeah. yeah, I I come from the Western world. Uh, you know, we we have uh, rainers, rain cow horses, uh, you know, versatility ranch horses. So the sliding style stall door is, seems to be much more steeped in our uh, in our history. Uh, the sliding stall door uh, is probably the most basic, the most utilitarian. Uh, it saves the most amount of space in the uh, in the barn aisle. Uh, and generally speaking, it's going to be the least expensive. As far as a hinged front style stall, uh, we typically see those in what's referred to as a European or Euro style stall front. You'll see those a lot in uh, hunter jumpers, dressage, uh, warm blood type horses, uh, some of the polo type communities where you know you don't have the large you know, track across the front. It's more like a, a scalloped front uh, European style. So one of the things, too, you don't want to skimp on is hardware on the sliding doors, because we've all been to that barn that they just don't work because the hardware is mm-hmm. just terrible. Um, good hardware on a sliding door is a necessity if you want to use it after three or four years. Yeah, quality is key. Uh, you know, So we see a lot of um, stall fronts that are uh, kind of uh, you know, self-assembled or, or just cobbed together with local hardware. You want to have a stall front that really is designed to work uh, together, not just a, a high quality uh, Durlin type of roller uh, that will last longer than a, than a cheap galvanized roller, a good quality latching system. Our stall doors will actually latch in any position throughout the travel of the door. So if you want to open the door a foot and latch it, place your wheelbarrow in front of that opening, go in and muck your stall. The horse can't bust out past you. So that's a really well-designed latch. And then uh, on your sliding doors, a, a door keeper system or a door retainer system on the bottom. So the door can't be pushed away from the stall, either in its open or closed position. So yeah, a good, well-designed uh, hardware system on your stall front is very important. And then the other thing with hinged doors, if you have stalls opposing each other on opposite sides, you need a wider aisle than you would Absolutely. with a sliding door, right? So, yeah, your stall stall doors really need to be four feet wide to give room for horse and handler to pass. Uh, so if you have a 12-foot wide uh, barn aisle and you have a, a you know four-foot wide door open on either side of the stall or either side of the aisle, you're greatly reducing the travel area uh, in that uh, in that barn. Also, if you if you know, a lot of these hunter jumper type programs will have tack trunks in mm-hmm. front of their stalls, so take into consideration where that door is going to swing uh, when you have tack trunks placed in front of the stalls. So, what safety considerations should you take into account when you're planning for your stalls? I mean, we've all had if you've had horses for any amount of time, all of us have had the cast horse, right? I don't care what the stall, how big the stall is, or what it's made out of. We have to deal with that, but how can we do the best we can to avoid injury? So a, a good safe footing in your stall. Uh, we love stall mats and a well compacted base. Uh, a door that is no less than four feet wide. Four feet is by far the most common in the industry. Uh, I personally prefer to place a sliding stall door on the 
right-hand side of the stall sliding to the left when you walk in front of it. So, you know, typically we're going to lead a horse in our right hand. And if your stall door slides from right to left, you can reach, grab that mm-hmm. door latch, slide the stall to the left, and you can enter the stall with the horse without ever having to cross paths directly in front of the horse. You know, we know directly in front and directly behind are the no-go no go zones on horses. So if that stall door slides right to left, you can open, enter, and release the horse without having crossed in front of them. So we've talked about sliding versus swinging. What are the other considerations for stall doors? So there's several different uh, design styles when it comes to stall doors themselves. Uh, our basic uh, entry-level stall door is going to be a, uh, a pipe top with a tongue and groove lumber fill bottom. We also have options for um, operable yoke tops so your horses can hang their heads out when you want to and close it when you don't want them to. Uh, we also offer a pipe top and pipe bottom. Now, when we go to a pipe bottom door, we do reduce the spacing of that pipe in the bottom. So if you had a mini or something, they couldn't get a hoof between the the pipes and the bottom of that door. I'm personally a huge fan of the pipe bottom door because you can walk down the aisle of your barn and in an instant you can look into that stall you can see if a horse is cast you can see if the stall is clean you can see if they've you know got their blanket wrapped around their uh, legs you can you know there's just there's so much advantage to being able to see into the bottom of that stall it also you know promotes airflow and increases light what what do you guys use for your posts are you using six by sixes eight by eights four by fours what are you using for your corner posts So we pioneered the laminated wood column uh, system way back in the the late 70s, early 80s. So rather than a solid sawn post, we use a column that's built in a press that's uh, multiple layers of two by sixes or two by eights, depending on the barn design. Typically, it's two by six. So you'll have three number one grade uh, two by sixes put together in a press. And this gives you a, a stronger, straighter column than what a solid post would. Uh, we also use what's called the Morton Foundation System, which is a precast concrete lower column. So we no longer put treated wood in the ground. So we have a precast concrete pier that we embed a minimum of four feet in the ground. And then we bolt that laminated column uh, to that pier when it's once it's up above the, the grade. So you're digging the hole and then you, you have this pre-made concrete thing, you drop it in the hole and then the post goes in that concrete. That's correct. Oh, that's interesting. That's probably much quicker for you guys to do too than doing it the other way. It yeah. it is it's a it's better than a solid sawn post for many reasons. You know, if you you've we've all seen even the highest quality six by sixes or four by sixes will have one big knot in them that yeah. compromises the whole post, or they twist. They're they're really bad for for twisting and cupping. So that's that's the basics on stalls. In the last segment we did, which you can still go back and listen to at the link I gave you earlier, we talked about the building itself. But one of the things we didn't discuss is what the building, the exterior is made of, whether it's metal or you know wood or cladding or, or any of that. So what do you guys recommend? What do you do the most? So our most common cladding, both roofing and siding, is a 26-gauge um, PVDF painted system. So, you know, not all colored. Uh, That's metal, right? Yeah, yeah. metal. What, what a lot of people refer to as tin. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all corrugated metal roofing and siding is created equal. There's actually uh, vast differences in different qualities and, and materials. So, gauge refers to the thickness of the material. And when it comes to metal thicknesses, 
the larger the number, the thinner the material. So a lot of builders, especially your low cost budget builders or DIY type kits, will use a 29 That's gauge what I've material. Seen. 26 and 29 yep. are the two I've yep. seen. So yeah, so 29 is about 20% thinner than the 26 that we use. Uh, and then another big difference is the paint that's used on it. We use a 70% PVDF, which is a big fancy uh, uh, you know, expression for a very high quality exterior finish that resists fade and chalking for a long period of time, where you're, you know, a lot of your lower cost builders will have a uh, polyester-based paint, which will fade and chalk and crack and peel uh, rapidly. And the other consideration is fasteners. So we use a stainless fastener with a color matched head. We found that a lot of the rust and failure on metal roofing and siding begins at a low quality fastener. So choosing a, a very high quality fastener is, is paramount. Now that's our standard uh, and the most common, the most durable and probably the most cost effective. We also offer, you know, shingle roofs, which you, you know, everybody's familiar with a shingle roof. As far as siding goes, we can also do, you know, brick, stucco. Uh, we do a lot of hardy, hardy lap or hardy board and batten or some of the, you know, cement board type sidings. And those are all uh, style related uh, considerations that we'll discuss with the homeowners. I do pity the people who have to put up the hardy board because I have seen hardy board and I've tried to lift a four by eight sheet of hardy board. Mm-hmm. It's made of concrete. I mean, it's it is concrete. <laughs> it's really heavy. It, hardy is hardy is beautiful, uh, but it also has a maintenance component, so it will have to be painted every ten to fifteen years. Now, mm. if you're trying to match a home that has hardy, we love doing hardy because it just looks amazing. But just keep in mind, it will have a maintenance aspect to it over time, and it's heavy as heck. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thanks, Dennis, for joining us again. If you're looking to build your stable or stall barn or riding arena, a Morton building is professionally built for your functional needs and your horse's safety and budget. Save now through February on new buildings during their building value days. And you can learn more at mortonbuildings.com slash project slash equestrian, or you can just scroll over on your podcast player and we'll have the link right there so you don't have to remember it. But Morton is the leader in buildings in this in this country, and, and uh, I certainly know a lot of people that have Morton buildings and absolutely love them. Thanks, Dennis, for joining us. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, Kristen, I am super excited because it is our time to bring on new vocations back with our show. And today we have Winnie Morgan Nemeth and a special guest. We have Dot Morgan, who is the founder of New Vocation. So it, it kind of feels like we have a celebrity on with us at the same time. I know, we're a little starstruck. We're like, a little Dot's bit. here. Yeah. We, we may have fangirled <laughs> for five minutes, but that's okay. Welcome, Winnie and Dot, to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for being here because it is a kind of special treat. We're going to have a little more unique segment. Normally, we're featuring a training tip in our adoptable uh, horse of the week for someone who may be new to our show, but this time we have a little bit different uh, training tip offerings and one we think listeners will really like. Some of you may be familiar with um, a book that New Vocations put out called Beyond the Track, and it focused on thoroughbred training. But now we have a new book on the standard bread side called Track to Trail that Winnie and Dot have put together. Um, Winnie, would you like to introduce the book and sort of how it came to be? Sure. So um, the book is called Track to Trail, A Simple Guide to Transitioning Standard Breads from Racehorse to Riding Horse. And all of you know the many years of working with New Vocations and obviously um, Dot started New Vocations, 
we just felt that there needed to be something on retraining the standard bread that would be a simple guide. And it was really important that we start with what the horses knew and like what their background is, because so many people are not familiar with harness racing. So it starts with that perspective. Um, you know, if a standard red is right for you and going into what they know at the track, and then it, it goes into transitioning the horse. And then it goes into what your standard bread wants you to know from the horse's perspective. Um, so it is, is a very thorough and easy to read guide with great photographs um, that we did at our new vocations facilities and then pulled things from um, the U.S. Trotting Horse Association that helped us with our racetrack photos. Um, but really, Dot gets the credit because she has the uh, many, many years of experience of transitioning over a thousand standard breads that she could offer that perspective as well as, you know, being involved herself in harness racing. That's amazing. That is like an incredible like life's work amount of horses transitioned. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've never gotten to speak with Dot before. So Dot, welcome on. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about your experience with the standard breads in particular, because I think like, you know, I've come from RRP side. So of course, I'm thinking like, oh, new vocations and it's thoroughbreds, but the standard breads is a huge part of what you guys do. So, mm -hmm. you know, what's your background with standard breads? And, you know, what kind of inspired you to get new vocations started? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm married to Winnie's dad, fifth generation harness horse trainer driver. So, um, it, you know, it was a natural for me. My dad had brood mares, standard bred brood mares, and we raised yearlings and sold them, but we didn't have anything to do with racing. Then as a teenager, I went, my first job was at Louisville Downs and I worked in the racing office. I worked for the veterinarian one season. I worked as a groom a couple of seasons, um, all while I was going to college. Um, and then married my husband and, and we trained and raced horses for a living for 50 years. So, but what got me involved with new vocations was, uh, when I did, learned from a dealer that was picking up horses at the track where we were training, um, what was happening to the horses. And that was about 1991 in the fall. And I just happened to to approach him and say, these horses that, that you're getting, are they all broken down and lame? Um, and he said, no, they're not, but they're crazy. Who would want them? By the time I get to the sale, two or three of them have fallen down and the rest are walking all over them. And that was the first I had a clue about the slaughter issue. I was on an OHHA board. I was on Ohio Standard Bread Breeders Board. Um, we were very active uh, in all the horsemen's organizations that had to do with standard breads. And we did not know that these horses were going to be slaughtered. We just thought, oh, they're picking them up. They're taking them somewhere. We can. We have room now for another horse. So I had a 4-H club at the time when he was in it. Anna was in it. We had some really good horse kids in it. And I thought, this is crazy. My 4-H members are riding mutts, basically, because they can't afford better. And these horses are being butchered because nobody wants them. And I said, somebody just has to stand in the gap for them. They're wonderful horses. I knew the horses. They're athletic horses. I rode them when I was a kid growing up in Kentucky. Um, the standard breads, I'd get on the broodmares bareback and ride them. So I just, it was a crime and nobody was doing it. So I, I researched, um, there was a standard bread retirement foundation, a thoroughbred retirement foundation. Nobody was adopting them. Well, those are good, but they're dead end because 
you can only take so many for life and then you're full. So it's really not able to serve very many in the industry. So that's when New Vocations was born. And we started out with just my personal mission, um, adopting about 40 horses a year for the first six or seven years until I... Um, prominent thoroughbred breeder twisted my arm very, very hard and basically demanded that I turn it into a 501c3 because he wanted to be able to ride his horses off. <laughs> and um, but, but he was more of a visionary than that. He said, Dot, if we'll turn it into a charity, it will become a national charity. Um, and I, that wasn't what I had in mind at all. I, it was just my personal mission. But he said, you know, the industry needs this. He knew that way before anybody else did. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's how I got into um, transitioning the horses. Um, I had ridden standard breads growing up um, just because I rode anything that had four legs. And that's what we had in our fields. And um, it, it wasn't unusual for us to ride uh, some of my husband's horses, especially ones that were really rank and hard to handle at the track, hard to exercise, like they would just want to go too fast. They would be great under saddle. They wouldn't take their anxieties with them under saddle. They, they knew they hmm. were race horses, but once you rode them, they were like, oh, well, this is fine. I can do this. We had horses in the beginning, literally that were dangerous runaways at the track and absolutely kids' horses under saddle. Oh, that's fascinating. So there was a there was a need for aftercare for these horses. And and at that time, of course, there's always been an Amish market and there's still a strong Amish market, but um, the Amish aren't real good with uh, lamenesses and injuries and those horses often end up going into the slaughter pipeline if they're not going to be sound enough to be Amish horses, but most of them will be sound enough to be riding horses. Yeah. That's where my little guy came from actually (laughs) my standard red. So that's awesome. Yeah. So that's cool knowing that it came, you know, from more of a standard bred experience that inspired this whole thing. And I love the idea for this book because I don't think that there is any publication like it out there. Like, you know, I feel like now thoroughbred aftercare is kind of, got a lot of momentum behind it. And certainly it's not like, you know, we haven't quote unquote fixed a problem, but you know, we're working on it. And on the standard bread side, it just feels like it's not quite as far along. So having a resource like this is so critical. Um, so what do you hope that people are getting out of the book? Well, I made it very simple. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, experts out there, experts in eventing and dressage and barrel racing and polo. Um, this is just simple. This is like, you got your horse, you need to know what he knows. It's really not that hard. And you can be on the trails in a very short time. And there's a, a substantial standard bread retraining group on social media has like 10,000 people. And there's all the time people in there that are getting horses from auctions, Amish, kill pens. I've got the standard bread. I don't know what to do with it. And all of their advisors there make it too complicated. It doesn't have to be that complicated. <laughs> It's really, really easy, but you have to do a few basic things right or you'll get in a train wreck. And then you can, once you understand the simple steps and you get them riding, well, then if you want to learn dressage and eventing and barrels, well, yeah, go ahead and work on that. But but don't get so complicated right off the bat. 
I like love advice. that. Like keeping it simple. <laughs> and I, you know, we talk about it every training tip, whether it's Winnie or Leandra coming on the show, thoroughbreds or standardbreds, it's all about the foundation that you're creating that will set your entire trajectory. So Dot, in your experience, and Winnie, feel free to jump in too. What has have you found to be the most critical place? And I'm sure this is in the book, but most critical place to start when that standard bread gets to your farm? Well, if the horse has never been ridden, the most critical step is getting on that horse without scaring the bejesus out of him. <laughs> Just getting on the horse safely and so that the horse is confident. And that is the hardest thing. And people that do that wrong and that horse bolts, then it's going to be hard to get that out of him after that. He's mm-hmm. old from then on. And you just don't want that kind of behavior. So mounting the horse for the first time is really critical. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, and it is very simple, but it, it is definitely something that needs to be done correctly the first time because I have found that, you know, our horses that have raced a lot, our war horses, tend to have a harder time with that first feeling that rider sit on their back for the first time and they look back mm-hmm. inside her. We've talked a lot about, you know, they go in a blind bridle, so they're not used to looking behind them and seeing someone on them um, that, you know, they just pretty much could sit down. Or if if you don't have two people helping you, it could be a real, could go really bad, but then it can also, they take a big breath and relax and you pet them and talk to them and they walk forward and all is well. <laughs> Once they're comfortable with a rider, which can happen in one day, one session, two or three sessions, usually for sure you'll be done, um, then you can just move right on from there pretty quickly. You can move on from there so quickly that you actually have to slow yourself down that you don't overdo it because once he understands he's comfortable riding you, he'll take you wherever you want to go as long as you want to go, but he'll also get very sore because he's not used to balancing a rider. So you don't want to you don't want to push him too much in the beginning that way, but you can get the whole process done in a, in a week or two. You can be on the trails if you know really? how to, if you know how to do it. Yeah, it really sounds like almost the same practices to breaking a young horse, just bringing in them slowly, building the trust, taking your time, and not rushing to scare them, making every experience positive. So, in some ways, and I hope this is not wrong to say it's almost sounds like a a little bit easier than necessarily taking a thoroughbred off the track and retraining because they do have a perception of riding and you have to switch their brain to being a sport horse versus a race horse where the standard bread's almost starting fresh. I think it is easier because they don't have to unlearn Mm -hmm. uh, fast under saddle. But now they don't know how to canter. And and that's one of the drawbacks that, that people have. Um, they can all learn to canter. They all cantered as babies, but they have been drilled so much on their trot or their pace that they're much more comfortable there. Mm-hmm. So if you want to canter your standard bread, you need to have an instructor or you need to be skilled enough yourself to do it. And you'll there's some tips in there about getting it, and you certainly can. But most of the standard bread riders, at least the trail riders, don't care anything about the canter. They can trot or rack or pace faster than any other horse can canter, and they're quite comfortable doing it. So I'd say the majority of the people that ride standard breads don't really care about the canter. 
Amazing. Well, I'm excited to learn more in the book. And, you know, for our listeners, this is your sneak preview and things you'll be learning. So make sure you get a copy. I have one more question, uh, Winnie and Dot. It's more of a fun question, but Winnie, what was it like writing a book with your mom? Oh, <laughs> it was a, uh, well, when we first talked about it, it, I was, I mean, of course I thought it was great. Um, quite a few years ago, we had a perspective of like what your thoroughbred wants you to know. And after answering these questions and seeing like Dot mentioned on the Facebook group, the retired, um, retraining the racehorse, you know, Facebook group, there's many out there, you know, you see the same question over and over and over. And so her and I were both on the same page that this is something we absolutely need to do. It did take uh, some planning and thankfully we had a lot of great um, photographs to choose from, you know, from our own archives from transitioning all the standard breads we have. And we work with some great photographers uh, and then we had set up a few photo shoots and got the, you know, some other things that we needed. But overall, it, you know, it was just really fun to see it all come together because we feel like we answer these questions every day, all the time, uh, especially with adopters if they're having problems and they're reaching out. So um, I'm just really excited that it's done now and out, but there's nobody better than Dot to write the book. She definitely is the expert. I love that. So, uh, ladies, where can people get the book? So, uh, we are going to be launching this book the week of February 14th. So, Valentine's week. Um, it will be a live uh, link on our website, newvocations.org. Uh, we have a shop tab that you will see. And um, we're still working on pricing the book, but it will be under $20. So, and it's 80 pages long. Perfect. That is, and that's like, like education for a bargain price is key folks, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think education is such an important part of, you know, rehoming any racehorse of any breed. So, you know, hats off to you guys for what you guys are doing over at New Vocations. Um, so newvocations.org or horseadoption.com folks, check it out. Keep an eye on our social media because Joy and I, uh, rumor has it, we might be getting uh, some advanced copies to preview. So we will uh, share our thoughts with you guys too when we get those. So Dot and Winnie, thank you so much for joining us today. We really look forward to seeing this book coming out. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to be here. Yes. Thank you guys. You can find our show notes and links to today's guests on the website at horseradionetwork.com. Like us on Facebook and Instagram, just search for Retired Racehorse Radio. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. You can find me on Instagram at The Horseback Writer and on Facebook at Jobber Bill Racehorse to Ranch Horse. My email is kbentley at the rrp.org. You can find me on Instagram at MissFitMare, and my email is joy at horseradionetwork.com. Thanks to our sponsors, Kentucky Performance Products, Cashel Company, and Wharton Buildings, and to our partners, New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program and the Retired Racehorse Project. Don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network, part of Equine Network at horseradionetwork.com. Remember to set your goals high and love to learn from every ride and add more leg. Bye, guys. Thank you.